all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to be spring cleaning my mailbox. So I accumulate a fair amount of email questions that come in um, to Southern Remedy as well as through my social media accounts. And once I get a good number of those emails. I bring those to you guys um, on the air because if somebody else has a question, you probably do as well. But if you have a question or a comment for us today, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. And you can add to the to the emails and give us an email at fit at mpbonline.org. All right, the first uh, couple sets of questions that I have kind of largely deal around food and nutrition, which we talk a lot about on this show. These are kind of some uh, more specific questions that come in instead of the just kind of the general nutrition stuff that we go through a lot. And this first question says, I need some traditional breakfast ideas. Oatmeal doesn't seem to last more than a few hours before my blood sugar levels start dropping. What can I eat? Well, it's a, there's several parts to this question. And first, I want to start with breakfast and why breakfast is important, right? And usually when I'm seeing um, patients in clinic and I start to do uh, a, a diet recall or, you know, go through what they eat in a typical day, the vast majority of uh, my patients don't eat breakfast. And I usually follow that with a question of, well, tell me a little bit about about that. Are you not hungry or is there some other barrier that's kind of keeping you from, from eating breakfast? And there are some that are, are not super hungry in the morning or um, kind of think that you have to have this big, massive breakfast to, to keep you going and those kinds of things. And that's simply not the case. Um, but the majority of folks that I work with, are hungry in the morning or hungry well before lunchtime and they wind up overeating at lunch or snacking throughout the morning period. And so I really work with folks on the importance of breakfast. And of course there's, you know, that old adage that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but you know, really what does that mean? And is breakfast something that we should be incorporating? And for the majority of people, yeah. Um, you know, I very much want people to eat when they are hungry, right? Um, but when we look at all of the kind of data and evidence surrounding breakfast, 
and we look at it, especially in relationship to weight loss, about 78% of people that have lost at least 20 pounds and kept it off for at least a year eat breakfast. And so there's actually a registry out there called the National Obesity Registry. And people can kind of submit um, in their information, again, if they've lost at least 20 pounds, kept it off for at least a year. And it asks questions about kind of common behaviors. And of course, we look to see what behaviors the majority of people that have been successful at weight loss and weight maintenance have in common. And like I said, about 78% of those people are breakfast eaters. Now, that's just correlation. It's not necessarily causation, but it is an interesting fact um, to think about. And one of the other factors to think about is you just burn more calories while you're awake than you do while you're asleep. So a lot of times the eating patterns that I see folks do are, are not eating breakfast, eating a, a you know, a moderate to heavy lunch and then eating a very, very heavy meal at the end of the day. And that really kind of sets us up for weight gain or at least not not weight loss. Um, because, again, you burn more calories during the, the waking, moving hours than you do uh, at the end of the day. And so if you consume the bulk of your calories then and then get in the bed and go to sleep, you aren't able to really burn through that kind of calorie-heavy meal. So if we think of breakfast as a really important strategy, then we have to think about, well, well, what do we eat, right? What, what should we be eating? And if you're a li regular listener to the show, you know that I have one of two breakfasts almost every day. I usually have some form of oatmeal, um, whether that be a, a warm oatmeal or more than likely an overnight oat or like a parfait that has oatmeal in it because I can make those ahead. Um, I'm, morning times at my house are special. Um, you know, we've got, I've got two kids. I'm trying to get ready and get out the door to school as well as myself and my husband get ready and go to work. And so we are, are short on time in the mornings. And so anything I can make ahead of time just helps us get out the door with a little bit um more quickness. And so overnight oats are my kind of uh, food of choice to do that. And then um, if I've got a little bit more time, I'd opt for something like a whole grain toast or a whole grain um, like tortilla wraps smeared with some peanut butter and some kind of fruit rolled up in there. And those are kind of my go-tos. Now, this question says, oatmeal doesn't seem to last more than a few hours before my blood sugar levels start dropping. And so there are a couple of things there that stand out to me. Um, one is, you know, kind of like, how do we know that your blood sugar levels are dropping? Are we, are you checking your sugar? And we truly are starting to have some uh, some falls in blood sugar level there, or are you just starting to feel hungry and, and maybe not so great? Uh, and then what what is in the oatmeal, right? When we build a breakfast, we want to look for some type of a whole grain starchy item, um, some type of protein, and then some type of fruit or veggie or both, right? And we really need um, all the workers to, to show up. And when I say workers, each one of those kind of macronutrients from carbohydrate, fat, and protein uh, have specific jobs that they do in our body. And so our body's kind of looking for those, especially at breakfast time, since we've been fasting overnight. 
And so with uh, with oatmeal, if we're just having, you know, like a, a pack of instant oatmeal or, you know, prepared oatmeal, that's not going to hang around for a super long time. It does have that whole grain fiber component that is going to um, help slow digestion down and keep you fuller for longer, but it needs something else to kind of anchor it in place. And that is usually going to be a fat or a protein or both. And so my choice in my oatmeal is to add in either some nut butter or some nuts. Um, that's going to give me healthy fat and protein that's going to help me stay fuller for longer. And then I'm also going to throw in um, some type of fruit as well. The fruit's going to take up more room in our belly. It's got lots of fiber in it. So again, it's going to slow down digestion and keep me fuller for longer. The second kind of uh, response question I would have to this individual is um, what time is breakfast? Right. You know, if, if breakfast is super early, you know, 530 or 6 a.m., then you are going to get hungry before lunch. Uh, and that's OK um, to build in a snack there. You know, if lunch is at nine and you're not I mean, if breakfast is at nine and you're not making it to a noon lunchtime, um, we may have some tweaking that we need to do to, to better balance that breakfast out. Um, but it's it's okay to eat when you're hungry. So if you know if you're if you have breakfast at six and by nine thirty you're hungry, that's okay. Let's have a, a balanced snack that we choose um, to to kind of help tide us over to lunch. Uh, snack time, which we did a show on snacks a couple weeks back, is a great opportunity to um, get in nutrients that you may not get in some of your main meals. So it's a great place to add in some fruit um, or uh, some uh, raw veggies, those kinds of things. But if you're looking for something, you know, different than oatmeal or toast, there are a multiple, multiple other things you can do. Um, egg muffins are a really good option as well, where you make, um, make like little frittatas in a muffin tin and you can kind of customize those so that it's not the same flavor over and over again. You just chop up some, some veggies and throw in your muffin tin and then either you know whisk together some whole eggs or egg whites or half and half and I would usually lean uh, more toward the egg white or the um, half whole eggs half egg whites just to decrease some of that fat and cholesterol in there and pour those in the um, the muffin tins and bake those in the oven and again that's pre-portioned so you know you got some portion control built in there and you can also make a lot at once so that you've got a couple of days worth um, to do and I just wrap mine in the um, uh, paper towel and microwave and heat up beautifully there um, and then you know you can think outside the box a little bit I know this question said traditional breakfasts but you don't have to eat just breakfast food at breakfast time um, you know, you can have a sandwich or you can have something a little bit more savory at breakfast time, or you can have leftovers from the night before, you know, whatever it is that is easy for you to get that you enjoy eating and that is kind of well-rounded and balanced out is a nice option for breakfast. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app.
Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we're going through my mailbox today and spring cleaning out all the good messages and questions that I get over the past couple of months. And we've been talking uh, nutrition related questions, and I've got a couple more of those um, that have come in. And actually, one of them relates kind of directly to the question that we just had about breakfast, um, because I talked about my overnight oatmeal that I do. And this question asks about dark berries. And I usually recommend that folks have dark berries um, at least once a day. And this question says, I know you recommend dark berries, but they go bad before I can use them. How can I stop throwing away my money? And berries are one of those things that have a relatively short uh, kind of shelf life. Um, But the first uh, kind of tip for that is have a plan for how you're going to eat them. Um, If you just are at the store and you're like, oh, berries, and you buy them and you put them in your cart and you don't have a plan for eating them, you may eat a few, um, but they're going to go bad, right? And so I was always taught kind of growing up and, and watching cooking shows and all these things to not wash your berries before, like when you bring them home. Like usually all your other produce, you wash, you wash it and get it ready to go. And that kind of helps um, speed up uh, mealtime and those kinds of things. But berries were one of those things we were taught uh, not to not to wash but until right when you were ready to use it. And that was the strategy that I used for most of my adult life. Um, but I started... Uh, washing my berries, uh, put them in like a big salad center and washing them with water and a bit of white vinegar, just like a capful of white vinegar, um, and let them soak for a few minutes and then rinse them really, really well. And then I spin them dry in my salad center and then uh, get a sheet pan and lay down some paper towels and put those, uh, make sure they're not all clumped up on top of each other. They're separated and have room to drain and lay those berries out on the um, kitchen uh, paper, the paper towels, and let them dry for a little while before uh, I put them in. I have a special little container that I use that I got at the dollar store that is uh, kind of vented and is better for, for berries and vegetables. And that's how I store my berries now. Um, I've also seen um, some uh, folks on social media storing them in uh, glass mason jars and that that has worked well for them. I have not tried that one yet, though. If you have tried it, I'd love to hear whether it works for you or not. But that has added several days of shelf life to my berries. But I try and have half a cup of dark berries. And when I say dark berries, I'm talking things like blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, um, blackberries, those types of things. A half a cup per day. 
And so most little packs of berries that you buy at the store are going to be around um, either 8 to 16 ounces. And so that's two to four days worth of berries uh, for me. And I plan when I'm going to have them. That way, I'm usually eating them up before they go bad. But if something happens and you run out of time and you can tell your berries are uh, about to go bad before you'll ever get all the way through them, you can freeze them. So you take that same sheet pan that you had before and lay out some wax paper, parchment paper, something like that, and put the berries separated from each other. So not all clumped up, but separated out on that sheet sheet pan and put that into your freezer and you know, freeze it for several hours. I usually freeze it um, overnight. And then when you take those berries out, the individual berries are frozen. So they're not in a big clump. And you can then move them to a Ziploc bag or a container that you're using in your freezer and pop them in there. Um, and that way they don't get all kind of goopy and stuck together and have big bunches there. And the second part of that is frozen berries are just fine as well. You know, if, if fresh berries are not accessible for you or are too expensive, then lean toward a frozen berry already. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, in fact, they're often uh, have more kind of nutrition and vitamins in them than some of the fresh ones, especially if, um, if, if it's out of season for the type of berry that you're wanting to, to eat. And so keeping those frozen in the freezer is a good option. Try and pick the ones that are just frozen berries, like not packed in syrup, um, because that's just going to be added sugar that you add in um, into your meal that you're not, you know, you're, you're not controlling the amount of sugar there. But why do I recommend dark berries? Well, a variety of reasons. One, they're delicious. Two, they have a lot of antioxidants in them, so they help with inflammation and kind of decreasing um, inflammation. They are full of vitamins and minerals, uh, like vitamin C. Again, good for inflammation, good for just overall health and wellness. Uh, Full of fiber, uh, so they are going to fill you up and slow digestion down. And then when we look at Um, The glycemic index, which is kind of a marker of um, how much effect different things can have on your blood sugar and those types of things. Berries are one of the lower glycemic index um, type items. So if you're looking for um, a fruit going to run your blood uh, blood sugar super high, then berries are often a really good addition to try there. So I hope that helps make your berries last a little bit longer there. All right. Our next question says, uh, I'm finding it difficult to eat vegetables. They just seem so much more labor intensive than fruit. And it can seem that way. It can. Um, What I usually recommend and what I have my Uh, patients do is to make a list of vegetables that you really enjoy, right? Um, And then a list of veggies that you might enjoy, but, you know, you don't eat them as often either from a, you know, financial reason, they're more expensive, or they're more time consuming to cook, those kinds of things. And we focus on building meals out of those that we know we like, and that we have easy access to. In terms of, you know, time commitment on things, if it is something that can be prepped ahead of time, let's go ahead and do that, right? Um, if it's carrots, maybe we go ahead and peel and chop those up. Um, same deal with um, like peppers or onions 
Um, all of those things we can wash and prep ahead of time. I usually buy a, a big thing of peppers and onions at uh, it, during my weekend, and I go ahead and prep those in a couple of different ways. I buy a big bag of both, and I usually chop up, like dice up a couple of onions and a couple of peppers, and then I slice, like make half moons out of the onions, um, a couple of those and a couple of those peppers. And that way, they're the two different prep types are ready for different things, right? The diced up ones are ready to uh, saute into different soups and sauces and those kinds of things. And the ones that are in more strips or more slices, I can use for things like sheet pan fajitas, which are super easy to throw together, or um, kind of my take on a cheese steak, which is with sliced portobello mushrooms instead of beef, but again, those onions and peppers in there, as well as just being able to grab those sliced peppers and have those as a snack with some type of dip. I usually go for hummus, but you could do guacamole or salsa, any of those different kinds of things there. And so having those things already ready for you is one of those strategies to uh, to be able to make getting in those veggies a little bit you can also, you know, pre-prepped veggies are more expensive. So, you know, take that into consideration. So if you're, if you're able to afford those, then having some veggies that are already washed and pre-cut up um, may be an option that you want to go with if, you know, time is really, really short and you feel like you can't wash and prep your own. Um, and my other secret that I use and recommend is keeping steamable packs of things, Um either in the freezer or the shelf-stable ones as well, um, because that can turn, uh, you know, just a, an easy, you know, dinner, adding multiple sides to that and veggie sides when you have that, um, especially if you pack your lunch and you're like a frozen meal kind of uh, lunch person, throw a frozen pack of veggies in with that, and that just kind of helps balance out uh, balance out that meal gives you some veggies and some fiber there and also lets you fill up without having to have too much of that uh, frozen meal which is usually pretty heavy in in sodium which is not great for our blood pressure um, so those are some of the tips um, that I use and that I recommend with you know with patients that I'm working with to really focus on on those veggies and be able to add those in um, and, you know, it's not an all or nothing type of thing. You know, if chips are the snack that you usually really enjoy, um, just subbing vegetables in there may leave you kind of frustrated and still kind of craving that salty chip. So make it both, right? Have a, a small handful of tortilla chips, but also some cut up veggies that you're dipping in your guacamole and your salsa so that you're still able to, to have what you were craving or what you really wanted, um, but you're balancing it out with some veggies, which are where your fiber lives. It's where your antioxidants live. All your good vitamins and minerals um, are hanging out there. All right, before we go to our next break, I want to try and get to one more question. Um, and it says, I'm really struggling to make good food choices. I'm very stressed, and to cope, I eat unhealthy things. Help. Well, you're not alone. Um, stress eating is one of those things that 
I see very, very frequently, and I think we've probably all fallen victim to that at some point in time, especially when it's things that are um, highly palatable, meaning they taste really, really yummy, um, and they're really easy to get and to eat quickly. So it's often packaged um, sweet or things like chips and, and that kind of um, thing. And they do make us feel better in the short term. And so what I would recommend in this case is we've got to get help for the underlying stress, right? Um, because it sounds like this person kind of understands the foods that they need to eat more of and the foods that they need to eat less of. You know, I, I don't like to use good and bad in relationship to food, but just food we need to eat more of and food we need to eat less of. And it sounds like they understand that, but the the, the stress is kind of the biggest stumbling block to being able to do that. And so a lot of people try to just kind of forge through with willpower and, and depriving themselves. But ultimately, that's usually not a long-term lasting, uh, sustainable strategy for dealing with this. Of course, there are kind of quick tips that you can do, like distraction. You know, if you find yourself reaching for something, um, a snack when, uh, when you're stressed, you know, asking yourself, am I really hungry right now? And if not, kind of distracting yourself with something else, maybe going for a walk, um, maybe, you know, reading a chapter in your book or drinking a glass of water, those kinds of things. But sometimes that's just not going to cut it, right? And so really addressing the underlying stress and learning some stress reduction techniques um, is really going to be my recommendation here. Um, and, you know, stress can be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, good stress makes us do things, right? Makes us be productive and, and turn things in and, and those kinds of things. But maladaptive stress, which kind of sounds like what we're leading into here, is not helpful. And we want to learn ways to, to cope with that. Now, it could be that we're actually at the point of having, you know, a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder or um, depression, something like that. Um, or it could be kind of more situational stressors, and we can learn relaxation techniques and mindfulness-based techniques to help deal with that. But it's time to have a conversation with your healthcare provider about your stress and how it is impacting your ability to kind of proceed along a healthy eating pattern like you're wanting to do so that we can get you the help that you need to be successful. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we've been going through your emailed questions that you have sent in to us, but we are live today if you have a question that you want to, to ask. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can also email it and kind of add to our mailbag at fit at mpbonline.org. Now, before we get back into some questions, I want to do a follow-up, um, follow-up information to something that we, we learned on the show a couple of weeks ago. We had um, a neurologist that was on to talk about Parkinson's disease. And we talked about nicotine being uh, kind of protective in terms of um, the risk of developing Parkinson's disease. And of course, myself and the other physician uh, kind of hammered home that that's not a reason to start smoking um, for, for the nicotine there um, to help with the prevention of Parkinson. And we had a caller who called in to tell me that there was nicotine in bell peppers. And this was not something that I was super familiar with, which was a little surprising. Um, and so I had to dig and do a little bit more research. And actually, it's true. And it uh, nicotine-containing um, vegetables and, and you know, plants um, largely fall in the nightshade family of plants. And so that's usually things like eggplant and potatoes and um, tomatoes and um, peppers. And actually, when you look at the nicotine content of those, um, peppers win. Um, there's there's kind of very little in the potato and the um, eggplant, but a fair amount in tomatoes and then even more so in peppers. And so there have been some kind of studies that have looked at um, the protection of, you know, nicotine from from smoking and then uh, nicotine from a patch or a gum and then also these uh, nicotine-containing foods. And the the patches and gums, the evidence is kind of sketchy uh, on it or, or not as, as firm as we would like for it to be. Um, but around the those uh, vegetables, around the tomatoes and the peppers, um, it does appear to have some um, risk-lowering effects to it. Um, now, is that a combination of the fact that there's also a bunch of other phytochemicals and antioxidants in those types of foods um, that are also good for brain health and disease prevention? Maybe. Um, you know, there's a whole lot more research that needs to go around that and, and be done in that respect, but it's pretty, pretty doggone interesting and a very low-risk, addition to to your plate, right? Um, just adding in some tomatoes or some peppers. And what we what they looked at was, uh, you know, the frequency at which people consume those. And the more frequently people had things like peppers on their plate, the more, um, the, the greater the protection. So it might be worth uh, adding some uh, peppers and bell peppers into your um, to your weekday meals, either from a raw standpoint with some dip, like we talked about in the prior segment, or chopped up and added to your um, to your sauces and your stews and those types of things. There, it very much follows along with the Mediterranean way of eating, which is very um, heavy on uh, bright, colorful fruits and vegetables, and in particular things like tomatoes and peppers and those types. So I am continuously amazed by the power of food to help us in disease 
um, prevention and treatment. All right, back to our questions today, and we'll we'll leave the food train for a little bit and and talk about um, sunscreen. Actually, so this question came in actually came into my um, social media account. Um, with someone who is planning a beach trip with their family, um, kids and adults, uh, in June, what sunscreen do I recommend? And it's a great question and something that um, is very needed at this time. You know, we it's finally getting warm on a consistent basis, so we're spending uh, more and more time outside. Um, so there's kind of just baseline sun protection that we need, and that's really all year long, um, which is uh, kind of, you know, SPF is the, the word that we use to determine, you know, kind of how protective something is. Um, that's really a daily thing that we should be using all the time. Um, I have it in my uh, moisturizer for my face in the morning, has some SPF added into it. But if we're talking about a more kind of concentrated, prolonged exposure to the sun, like like a beach trip, there are several things to kind of take into account with that. Um, there are, you know, kind of two sets of, of UV rays that come from the sun, UVA, UVB, um, and they do different things and cause damage in different ways. Um, but the take home or the kind of net, net effect of exposure to these types of things is one kind of uh, photo aging, so some kind of damage to the skin that causes your skin to age and get get more wrinkles and those kinds of things. So that's one kind of important thing to talk about. And then, of course, the one that is more um, significant in terms of medical disability, and that is the cancer risk that comes from sun exposure. So when you're planning a beach vacation, not only do you need to take into account um, the type of sunscreen that you use and the SPF protection from it, but also timing of when you're going to be outside and other sources of sun protection, right? So most folks at the beach are out right in the middle of the time when the sun is highest in the sky with the greatest intensity of rays, right? Which is 10, 10 in the morning to around two to three in the afternoon. And that's when a lot of people are out at the beach. So, you know, aside from the SPF and the sunscreen factor, think about um, some type of, of respite or, you know, protection from the sun that you can add out there, whether it be um, a beach umbrella or a little canopy or something like that. You need some type of area to be able to get out of the sun uh, and, and rest uh, in, in the shade a little bit there. Um, you also can think about UV protective clothing, um, like the um, water shirts that you can wear that have um, um, UV protection built into them. Those are great. I use those on my kiddos all the time, um, as, as well as wearing one myself. And then we get into the actual sunscreen um, discussion. We want to pick one that says broad spectrum on it, okay? That's meaning it's protecting against both types of rays. Um, and we want to choose an SPF of at least 30, okay? Now, you'll see some that are are lower than that. You'll see SPF of 15. That's kind of what I recommend for just daily, everyday use. But if we're going to be out in the sun, an SPF of at least 30 is required. Um, and the protection that the 
uh, sunscreen affords is directly related to application technique, right? So you have to make sure that you're using enough and that you're applying it um, in the correct time frame there, okay? So when we talk about applying sunscreen, it is a whole lot more than you think. Um, you know, I see folks just give a little, like a little toothpaste squirt in their hand, and that is not enough. Um, so there are a couple different strategies um, when you're trying to kind of measure out your sunscreen protection. Um, one is it's about an ounce to an ounce and a half of sunscreen, which if you think about like a shot glass, that's, that's how much, and that's a lot. Um, another way to kind of measure it out a little bit more is kind of the teaspoon method. So if you think about what a teaspoon looks like, um, you want to use a, a teaspoon for your kind of your face, your neck, those types of things. You're going to use a teaspoon for the front of your, like your torso, a teaspoon on the back of your torso, a teaspoon each on each arm. Um, and then two teaspoons per leg. So one on the front of the leg, one on the back of the leg. So that's a whole lot more sunscreen than most of us um, uh, use. And if you don't use enough sunscreen, then it reduces the SPF protection. So if you use half the amount, you're going to have um, much less protection. You're not going to get that full SPF um, 30 there. Um, the second piece of it is timing of when you apply that sunscreen. So you don't want to wait till you're out at the beach to put that on. You want to give it, you know, 15 to 30 minutes or so to kind of absorb and, and, and produce that skin barrier that we're looking for. Um, so it's best to do that before you even get your clothes on. Um, let it kind of absorb and then get your swimsuit on and get ready to, to go out. A lot of sunscreens used to be um, labeled waterproof and those kinds of things. That designation has been removed um, by the Food and Drug Administration because none of them are truly um, waterproof. They are either water or sweat resistant. Um, but even the most resistant, water resistant form is usually only going to last up to about 80 minutes. Um, if your product is designated as water or sweat resistant, it's going to be anywhere from 40 to 80 minutes um, that it is resistant to that moisture, whether it be swimming or sweating or a combination of the two. So you're going to have to reapply those things um, as well during the time. So it's not just a one and done type of situation. And another question, um, this, this person did not mention kind of how old their kiddos are. Um, but the American Academy of Pediatrics um, doesn't usually recommend sunscreen products in babies under the age of six months. Um, you really want to focus on um, clothing protection, shade, and those kinds of things. Um, this would be a case I would recommend talking to your pediatrician, right? Sometimes they will um, recommend like an SPF 15 in really small areas um, to, to help with that. Um, and usually more of the like zinc oxide products um, or titanium dioxide products and, and less of some of the, um, the other uh, products that are out there. Um, but in general, it's something that you want to talk with your um, pediatrician about uh, the best type of sun protection that you can do for your little one. But having that shade uh, is important for everyone because you are going to need to rest and get out of that sun and stay hydrated. So make sure you are drinking plenty of water 
if you are sweating, like playing volleyball and doing those kinds of things, and you're out there for more than an hour doing that, then it's probably um, like a sport uh, sports drink or placer, um, like a Propel uh, water or Gatorade Zero, something like that, to help replace some of the things that you're lo- use- losing in sweat. Um, and if you're taking alcohol out to the beach, remember that that dehydrates you even more. Uh, so make sure you are adding in extra water to help with that. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we've been answering your emailed questions that have come in through our mailbox or through my social media channels, Um, but we actually have a question in the studio today. Kevin, what was your question? Thanks, Josie. My question is about COVID, and, you know, we've been through several variants, strains, and that sort of thing, but as as one comes around, the new one, it uh, identifies or takes up most of our attention. I'm wondering what has happened to the older strains. Do they just disappear? Well, it's not so much that they disappear. It's just that they get out-competed. So when, so the kind of the original, right, when we have it come out, that's often called wild-type. And that means they're, you know, it's kind of the first one that's identified. There are no kind of mutations to it, that type of thing. And then it starts to evolve, right? And it evolves to reach more people, right? So these variants that we have, um, usually the mutations that occur are to spread faster or evade um, coverage by um, a, a vaccine or a monoclonal antibody, those types of things, because it, it wants to survive, Right. Like, don't don't think of it like a thinking being, but in essence, it is adapting itself to reach more people or reach more hosts. Right. And so um, the the samples that are collected when you go to your healthcare provider's office or one of the testing sites around a portion of those are sent for sequencing um, that will tell us kind of what the actual genotype or genetic sequence of that particular um, sample has. So not all of them are tested, but a sample of them are. And if you're here in Mississippi, the the data from our health department is provided um, every week. 
um, on the msdh.ms.gov website in terms of variants. And it's really interesting to see um, the chart that I'm looking at right now is from October the 3rd, 2021 um, to April 29th, 2022. And it has a big crossover and a big X in the middle um, with October um, being almost exclusively Delta, like we had 98%, then 100%, and hung around in the anywhere from 90, you know, 97 to 99 to 100% um, being Delta. And then in December, we started to see a decline, gradual decline in the Delta and an increase in Omicron um, to where by January the First, actually, it was 89.9% Omicron. Um, and now, even all the way through April 23rd, we are um, 100% of the samples that are sequenced are Omicron. And it's largely because Omicron spreads so much easier. So it's not that Delta just kind of gave up, it just got outcompeted um, in terms of its, its ease of spread and some higher viral loads with it. So you just got more virus in your snot than um, than in the previous ones. So it, it just outcompetes it and spreads much, much faster there. So they didn't just, just go away. They just, they, they lost the race, so to speak. Um, and so I have a follow-up question to that, and it's about um, second boosters. So um, you may have heard uh, on the news that a second booster, second COVID-19 vaccine booster has been authorized. And so what does that mean? Um, and are you eligible for that? So um, there are certain kind of groups that are eligible for a second booster. So, of course, you know, primary series for the, co the commercially available COVID vaccines that we have here in the United States, which we have Pfizer, we have Moderna, and we have um, Johnson & Johnson or Janssen. Um, the primary series for Pfizer and Moderna are both two-dose series. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is just a one-dose, right? Um, so the first booster would be your third of Pfizer or Moderna. Your second of uh, will be the second dose for your Johnson & Johnson, right? So now we're talking about a, a second booster, um, which would be a, a fourth shot for the majority of folks that are going to qualify for this. And qualifications are 50 years of age or older and got your first booster at least four months ago. Okay? So that's kind of what's going to apply to the general population. So 50 and older and your first booster was at least four months ago. You qualify for this second booster. Um, if you are um, less than 50 but more than 12, Right, so 12 to less than 50, and are moderately or severely compromised, you would also qualify. The time frame is the same. So that first booster at least four months ago. Um, if you are 50 and older, then you don't um, have to meet that kind of moderately or severely immunocompromised. Um, and, you know, that falls into the folks who would be more likely to get very, very sick um, from COVID. That's going to be um, individuals who may be on an immunosuppressant medication, whether that be something for an autoimmune condition like, um, like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. So any of those medications like Humira or those biologics 
someone who is undergoing chemotherapy, um, those types of things. So if you have a question about whether you would qualify for a booster, if you're less than 50, um, you would need to have that conversation with your regular healthcare provider to determine if, in fact, you are um, immunocompromised. Um, but if you're 50 and older and your last booster or your first booster was at least four months ago, you do qualify for that. And so you can reach out um, on the health department website and look up where those are available. They're also available at most of your commercial pharmacies. So your Walgreens, CVS, Kroger, Walmart, Target, all of those um, have those available for you there. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.